Redbox Media Programming is brought to you by... We've got good news. The world is open again, and people like you, people of faith, are traveling to Catholic sites around the world. Want to travel with exceptional Catholic leaders this fall, next year, or in the future? Are you looking to see specific sites, celebrate traditional Latin Mass, or travel to destinations without vaccine requirements? We are here to help you deepen your faith on pilgrimage. Give us a call at 1-800-842-4842 or visit us online at selectinternationaltours.com. Select International Tours is your pilgrimage company, and we have the perfect Catholic trip for you. Are you looking to serve God and society? Consider putting your gifts to work as a lawyer. Ave Maria School of Law has been educating faith-filled lawyers for over 20 years. Ave Maria School of Law is committed to training lawyers to use law appropriately around the moral issues of our time. Visit AveMariaLaw.edu to learn more about integrating your faith with a law degree. Welcome back to Off the Shelf here on Breadbox Media. I'm your host, Pete Sox, a Catholic book blogger. Today we have with us Father Jeffrey Kirby. He is pastor of Our Lady of Grace Catholic Church in the Diocese of Charleston in Indian Land, South Carolina. He's the author of several books, including Kingdom of Happiness, Living the Beatitudes in Everyday Life, Doors of Mercy, Exploring God's Covenant with You, and Lord, Teach Us to Pray. He's appeared on EWTN, Salt and Light Television, and the BBC, as well as on Catholic Radio. He earned a bachelor's degree in history and a master's degree in philosophy from Franciscan University of Steubenville, where he also was given the 2017 John King Mazzeo Award for Faithful Service to the Church. Father Kirby also earned a bachelor's degree in sacred theology from the Pontifical Gregorian University. He has a master's degree in bioethics from the Pontifical Athenium Queen of the Apostles in Rome and a licentiate in moral theology from the Pontifical University of the Holy Cross in Rome, where he also earned a doctorate in sacred theology. Today we'll be speaking about his book, Sanctify Them in Truth, How the Church's Social Doctrine Addresses the Issues of Our Time. Welcome back to the show, Father Kirby. Thank you, Pete. It's good to be back. So uh, you've written numerous books, have I mentioned there. What brought you to writing this particular book? Yes, yeah, so th- this book, I think with most of my books, they come from my pastoral experience and, and my involvement in, in parish life as a pastor. Uh, this one in, in particular really came from the trenches in that over the course of time, I just received so many emails from parishioners asking, you know, Father, could you please address, you know, the whole debate over, you know, the difference between abortion and capital punishment? Can you please, you know, say something about critical race theory? Uh, could, could you please address the whole LGBTQ plus movement and so on? And and parents were just saying that it was coming up at, you know, youth sporting events or at homeowners association meetings or at places of work and so on. So after a while, I, I collected the different emails and, and, and inquiries and questions and drafted a, a homily series. And, and that's how the book actually started. It was just a series of homilies from the pulpit here in my parish. And the response was, was so um, overwhelming that eventually developed into an adult formation program. And Pete, if you could just imagine about three to 400 Catholic adults coming every week for about eight weeks 
for Christian formation. That was our reality. And, and you know, that is shocking in terms of adult formation in the mm-hmm. Catholic Church. And depending on the topic, again, we could have up, we could have had up to three to 400 people come. And, and it just showed the response that, that people were very interested. They wanted to know what does the church teach? How do I explain this? And, and that, those sessions were helpful because they were followed by Q&As. So people were able to ask, you know, to clarify or, or, or you know, pose challenges. And, and that was helpful because it, it changed the presentation or added things, you know, to, to the whole um, explanation. Mm-hmm. And that's why people eventually read the book, because that's where, you know, the book eventually came from that, the homily series and the adult education program. If people read the book in there and they say, wow, this is answering every question. I, I was right about, I was thinking about this and all of a sudden the book talks about it. And then I was thinking about this and the book talks about it. And, and my response is, well, because it came from people just like us. Like it, it came from people who, you know, are trying to speak Christians in the 21st century. It, it came from parents and, and, and spouses and it came from people in, involved in the community. So so many respects, again, while all my books kind of have that pastoral angle, this one in particular just came right from the request and, and, and really like the demands of the laity to please give us some answers, help us to give some explanations to what the church teaches uh, as we are trying to you know go about our, our affairs in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think most people see this as being obvious, but we live in a highly divided society these days. How do you think we got there? Is I think it, it's it's difficult in terms of our society that whenever you have a nation that has two political parties, it, it, it begs for there to be a binary approach to things. So there's going to be a natural tension, you know, and because we have two political parties and, and there's a false understanding that there are therefore only two ways of looking at something. Whereas imagine if our government had five political parties, mm. you know, and so on, it'd be different. So I think culturally we're kind of inclined to this type of natural tension. My, my great um, surprise is it's okay to have tension and disagreement. It's okay to have some aspects of division in terms of, of opinions on how to address social issues. My, my real shock is the utter loss of civic virtue mm-hmm. that we no longer respect one another or we no longer show the just basic kindness. And that, I think, is is a whole cultural move. I think that, you know, we live in the post-Roe world that we're, we're approaching. I think that Roe itself, with the slaughter of the unborn, I think that physician-assisted suicide has, has corroded any understanding of human dignity. And then, of course, you know, we just have all the things that flow from that. So whether we want to point to cultural trends like music or video games or, you know, the way in which we just interact with one another in society, it's just We've lost a sense of one another's dignity, and we've lost that civic virtue. So we can disagree. In fact, my book is meant to empower Christians because I'm anticipating disagreement mm-hmm. in, in the midst of society. But we can do so with with kindness. But the loss of kindness in our society is, is a tremendous loss to our society. As Christians, we are to go and to be the difference, to be that, that salt, light, and leaven, and, and, and to speak the truth, but as St. Paul tells us, to speak the truth in love, to say, I disagree with you, we are completely different odds, but I respect you, I honor your dignity, and I will be kind to you. Uh, that's the Christian way. Mm-hmm. In the book, you cover eight uh, topics, and you know we have a lot of issues today, as we kind of alluded to, but the first one you lead off with is abortion. What put that one at the top of the list? 
I put that first because I, I, I want to assume that most Christians, most Catholics who are reading the book, are going to automatically assume, well, yes, abortion is an evil. And so I want to kind of just lead into that because that chapter really addresses the deeper question within the Catholic Church of how abortion is preeminent among the other life issues. So whether it's immigration or capital punishment or poverty, while yes, all these life issues and, and social issues are important to us as Christians, abortion is preeminent. It means it's the first one, it's the highest one. It, it's the one that the church gives particular attention to. And I wanted to start with that because that debate that we find in the church, and really like a lot of false teachers within the church who tell people, Oh, you know, uh, you're only pro-life if you care about capital punishment and poverty the same way you care about the unborn. And, and that's not our understanding in our social doctrine. Uh, abortion is preeminent. There's a hierarchy of truths. Uh, some things are, are, are absolute. So, for example, abortion, no circumstance, no intention can ever make abortion correct, never make it good. Take, for example, immigration. Mm -hmm. Immigration is a prudential issue. It means someone or many people can have multiple different views or policies on immigration, and circumstances and intentions do change, whether they are good or not. And so it's possible, for example, with immigration, to have multiple good options in how to address that issue. So good people can disagree. But with abortion, because it's absolute, there is never, there can never be a compromise. There's never a time or a situation in which abortion is okay. So we call this the hierarchy of truth, in our social doctrine, the difference between absolute moral questions and prudential questions. And that chapter, I wanted to explain this and break it down so that when, you know, within the church, Catholics are challenged, even by other Catholics, on these questions that they'll be able to answer and, and draw from the catechism, draw from the scriptures in giving their answers. So with abortion, it's obviously a, a hot-button topic today, um, mainly brought to the top because of the forthcoming Supreme Court decision that should be happening here at any time. There's going to surely be a contentious climate post, as you mentioned, post Roe v. Wade, which hopefully will happen in the days ahead. How can we as Catholics approach that and deal with it? Yes, I think we do what we have always been doing. Uh, we have always been to do what we've always been called to do. A lot of times people don't realize that after the federal government the Catholic Church is the largest provider of human services in the United States. So we provide extensive care in terms of hospitals and Medicare and, and, and medical health, uh, in terms of outreach, in terms of uh, you know homes for unwed mothers, uh, all, all across the, uh, the, the gamut of life issues. Like we, we are there, we are involved, our, our sleeves are rolled up, uh, we are involved. And I think that, please God, when we live in a society where abortion is illegal on the federal level, what that will allow us to do then is invest more in the work that we're already doing. So to take care of unwed mothers, to let them know that, you know, they are surrounded by a community of love, to provide and to address, to provide assistance and to address the symptoms that might lead to attacks on human dignity. So poverty, illiteracy, you know, providing English as a second language to those who have come into our country, and so on. So all these different areas that we can address, we will now be able to address address even more because one whole aspect of that in terms of, of our advocacy for the unborn is now gone. So we can invest even more. 
But I want to stress, Pete, a lot of times even Catholics don't realize how much we're doing across mm-hmm. the board. So you hear people, you know, the, the pro-abortion movement say, oh, you only care about life until it's born, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, wait, no, 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 no. <laughs> like, we, we care about life in all its stages, and we are involved, again, sleeves rolled up in the trenches, taking care of life. And please, God, uh, Roe is overturned. We can invest even more time, more energy uh, in these efforts. Mm-hmm. Another area you look at in the book, and you alluded to it a bit there um, in the previous question, was uh, immigration. How do we, as a nation, balance the history of people coming to the United States to realize the American dream and balance that with our national security when the during these times um, that that uh, picturesque innocent person crossing the border may not always be as grandiose and innocent as it was as those coming through Ellis Island. Yes, I, I think that it's important that Catholics realize, and I'm drawing right from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and I just say, Pete, throughout the book, I quote the Catechism and the Scriptures. Mm-hmm. So people see this is not one priest's opinion. I'm not just giving one more thought that I, I am really drawing from the teachings of the Church in order to help people. And the Catechism makes it clear in terms of immigration that a nation should be generous, but to the degree that it is able. So I think as Catholics, we should understand that we are adamant in our support for legal immigration. We think that our legal immigration should be vast and generous in terms of the numbers of people that we welcome into our nation. But it should also be clear that as Catholics, we we do not support illegal immigration, that these are positive, good laws made by the authority that has been given authority by God, that they have passed these laws, that we are to honor those laws, even as we advocate for them to be expanded or to, for them to be more generous. So I think there has to be that balance that, yes, we should be generous, but to the degree that we are able. And the Catechism makes it clear that the political authority is the one who decides what is that ability, what level are we able to welcome uh, more people into our nation or any nation uh, and then they determine and they set that number. So, again, we see this balance in Catholic um, social doctrine between being generous but also prudent, right? Mm-hmm. So solidarity in terms of being a brother or sister to all people, but also subsidiarity it means in terms of taking care of our own. So to make sure that you know, our, our own citizens are the people of the society to which the political leadership answers, are they being cared for as well? And there's a balance, right? The, you know, if we, if we go to one extreme with solidarity, we become communists. If we go to the other extreme with subsidiarity, we become fascists, right? <laughs> so the so Catholic social doctrine is always there in the middle. So next topic, environment. Uh, I agree. We definitely have skin in the game on how we leave um, this planet for our next generation. But the one thing that drives me nuts, and it's it's it pops up in Catholic circles as well, is this concept or projection of a quote-unquote mother earth to the point where it becomes an equal with god what's the proper way for us as catholics to handle environmental issues exactly so we see the environment as a gift from god our entire approach as believers as catholic christians is from the context of stewardship so not political ideology not fear not faux science but from the perspective of stewards, that this creation has been given to us as a gift by God, that we are to care for this gift, 
to make sure that in our use of the gift of creation that we do not abuse it uh, or manipulate it in, in uh, you know, harmful ways to ourselves or to, to the environment itself. So our whole focus, and I think, Pete, that once people regain that perspective, mm-hmm. suddenly everything else is kind of put in its place. Because oftentimes when the environment is mentioned, it's a highly charged political issue right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the president of Ireland said it was climate change that caused 50 Christians to be killed in a church <laughs> in Nigeria. I mean, you know, this is getting a, a little extreme, right? Yeah. And, and I think as, as Christians, we say, no, like we approach it in the context of the stewardship. You know, do we look and say, is there climate change? Yes. Okay, we can see aspects of, of climate change. What level does humanity have a part to play in that climate change? There are massive scientific disagreements on this. And, and of course, anyone is, is free to choose what course of, of science or research they choose to follow. But as, as the church, in terms of faith and morals, we cannot oblige any believer, even if leaders of the church, even if the pope has an opinion, you know, no political, no uh, spiritual leader can impose uh, a scientific view on the faithful. So while we can have these different political views, different scientific views, uh, and, and you know, we can assess or, or, or not what we think of them or not, uh, at the end of the day, we are called to be stewards. We are called to care for creation. Uh, it is not Mother Earth that is actually uh, idolatry, to use such terms. Uh, no, this is a gift given by our God, the, the, the Father of all, and we are to call. We are called to care for it, to be attentive, again, to not abuse creation in in, a, in manners that are needless and pointless. So, moving on to another topic, um, how are we as Catholics to approach the LGBTQ plus movement? Um, partic- yes, tell you. Yeah, particularly when there's ones within that movement that are way over the top, in my opinion, and making their presence known. Yes, oh, I'll tell you, Pete, this is the <laughs> largest chapter of the book, and it's the one that received the most questions and inquiries from my parishioners. So people were saying, help, um, the transgender movement, do we do we use the pronouns uh, with, with the whole gay movement? Like, you know, what are we supposed to do about this? Like, do we invite our relative and his, quote, husband to, to Thanksgiving? Like, you know, help us with this, right? And I think that in answer to your question, we approach the LGBTQ movement with kindness and love, understanding that love always defers to truth. Love is love does not lie. Love does not, you know, perpetuate delusion, you know, or deception. So we approach the members of the LGBTQ plus movement with the same kindness we would approach anyone, especially those that we disagree with. And I think that with that movement, we have to speak the truth. And and of course, this is difficult because this has become a massive social movement with with corporate bullying behind it and social intimidation. I've oftentimes said from the pulpit for a movement that preaches and speaks about tolerance, it is actually very intolerant right? mm-hmm. in terms of anyone who would disagree with it or have a different opinion or thought or perspective. Uh, but but that's the movement. And and in my struggles oftentimes in trying to converse with members of, of this movement is that there's no civil discourse. So I mentioned earlier this loss of civic virtue. And oftentimes there are these extensive and very aggressive appeals to emotion. 
mm-hmm. and and you know subjective satisfaction or emotional fulfillment and so on. The, you know the, these states of affairs that are being described, but no real engagement in terms of reasoned thought or uh, you know cause and effect or you know things that normally in a society we use in order to have a civil conversation when we have pretty severe disagreement. And, and I've oftentimes struggled with why we can't have that civil discourse. Uh, and, and a lot of times what happens is the leaders of these movements don't want civil discourse. Mm-hmm. But we know, and I want to encourage people in terms of, of, of this book and in terms of their, their interaction with the LGBTQ plus movement, there are a lot, of, a lot of people and a large portion of people in this movement who are broken and hurt, rejected, confused, and they're the ones we're trying to speak to. Right. The leadership mm-hmm. is hell bent. They don't want to talk. They want to shoot us down, call us terrible names and shut us up. But there's a massive part of that movement of people who are also, in my experience, if we get through to them, they're the ones who are very open to listening and, and to asking questions. And they're trying to figure out what they're supposed to do with their lives, because a lot of times they come from brokenness or hurt or rejection or whatever the fallen world has, has thrown their way or beaten them up with. And, and to take that a little further, um, my observation is that most of those people that you're referring to, non-leadership in the movement, just want to live their lives and be left alone. They're not, they, they have no desire to push for the, the programs that the leadership of the LGBTQ plus movement are pushing for. That's correct. Exactly. And, and oftentimes... You know, because, you know, they themselves have been, you know, in situations where they've been hurt or there's been abuse or neglect uh, or, or brokenness of, of some form. And, and, and yeah, they just want to love and be loved. They, they want to have some type of companionship. And, and they've been told by the leadership of this movement that this is what they have to do. And this is the only way they can find that love. And those, you know, that that middle group that that you know, these, these portions of this movement, uh, that's what we're really trying to get to and, and the people we're trying to talk to uh, so that they can understand, though, there is a different way. There's a different way to pursue love and friendship, and there's a different way of finding acceptance. And, and that's why it's so important as Christians that we have our answers ready, that we don't get disillusioned, we, we don't react and say things that we don't mean because we then intimidate the ones we're trying to reach. So I think it's so important we know the answers and we and we find out you know prepare ourselves and then we speak the truth in love. Mm-hmm. And in that in that movement and critical race theory, which is the next uh, topic we'll discuss, is I think a lot of the reason those two movements are handled the way they are is because they've occurred in the last two decades where everything's so much more combative um, than perhaps in the '60s or '70s. Yes, very much so, very much. And, and so much of the social institutions that we relied on to maintain civic virtue have either been discarded or delegitimized as a source of, of moral authority. Mm. But, and, and, for example, fatherhood right. or the nuclear family, um, the police, um, teachers, uh, and so on. So we have stripped these historic institutions that have been sources of moral authority of any authority whatsoever, and that has opened up a, a whole uh, array of of attacks on life, marriage, family, sexuality, human dignity. 
And the thing with the critical race theory, it's very, don't know if you watch Star Wars or not, but it's very Anakin Skywalker, Obi-Wan Kenobi on Mustafar. When Anakin looks at Obi-Wan and says, if you're not with me, you're my enemy. Um, mm. You know, just because I disagree with your stance doesn't mean I'm a racist. It means I disagree with your stance and the topic we're talking about. But yes, can you give us an overview of critical race theory and why it's why it is what it is and why it's maybe not a good idea to have it in schools? Yes. So critical theory in a, in a broad perspective was created by Marxists in the early 20th century in order to dismantle and delegitimize democratic government and organized religion. And critical theory can take many different perspectives. So it can be socioeconomic. It can be, um, you know, uh, worker class versus manager class. And so it, it relies on a false tension in order to dismantle the institution that is threatening the Marxist agenda. And so in our society, we find critical theory being applied to race. So the idea is that if you're not a member of a particular race, that has been historically mistreated. If you're not members of, a member of that race, then you are inherently a racist. Any institution that you have created or participated in is inherently racist. Any views or perspectives that you've had or entertainment that you've nurtured, uh, anything you have done by being outside of the, uh, this particular racial group Therefore, because you're not a part of it, you're inherently racist. Mm -hmm. and, and you can see how this fuels tension and animosity. So you can have a community where, you know, white neighbors, African-American neighbors, Hispanic neighbors have lived peace, peacefully and have been, you know, models of, of charity and civic virtue. And then critical race theory comes in and says to the African-American family, the white families in this neighbor don't respect you. And they created the homeowners association in order to oppress you. And and they're organizing this yard sale for the community in order to mock you, right? And then all of a sudden these thoughts get into people's minds and then good neighbors suddenly become contentious and there's animosity and there's anger and there's accusation and so on. And and ultimately what it is is it, it, it was a deception. It, it it was an attempt to come in to dismantle the community, the well being and the strength of the community. And so in terms of critical race theory, as Christians, we vehemently oppose this because we don't judge someone by the color of their skin, right? I mean, mm -hmm. as, as Christians, like, you know, we, we look at the person before us and we judge them by the words they speak, the actions that they are a part of or, or that they themselves do. I mean, if we look at, you know, in terms of the broader Christian tradition, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, people forget that he was a Baptist minister. That, that, you know, when he spoke in the famous I Have a Dream speech, I mean, he, he summarized you know, the proper view very well when he says, you know, I pray for the day when my children will be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Mm -hmm. Dr. King was summarizing the Christian view, and, and I would say the view of a civilized society, that you judge by what the person has done or what they have said or what they have participated in. But you don't look at the person and say, oh, he's white. Therefore, he's my enemy or that person's Hispanic or that person is African-American. Therefore, they're my enemy. Like this is racism or inverse racism. And we have to be very careful of it. So as, as Christians, like we have to 
understand critical race theory and be able to address it. It, it causes harm to schools and neighborhoods and communities. Uh, it is destructive. It is designed to cause social tension in order to dismantle institutions of democratic government and organized religion. Absolutely. Father, this has been a, a fantastic book. It's always a joy to have you here. Uh, where can people find Sanctify Them in Truth? Yeah, so it's available through the publisher, uh, Tan Books, or through any local Catholic bookstore, uh, as well as on Amazon or on the uh, EWTN Religious Catalog. Excellent. Father, thanks so much for taking time out of your schedule once again and spending with us today. Any closing thoughts? Yes, I just say, uh, I want to encourage my fellow believers that they're you know, really harmful to you are able to go out and